you know, deep into my practice, probably seven years into my private practice, I just really started seeing this framework that people would come into my office and they would be very comfortable with their sin. Um, they would name it. They would be, you know, they would, they would be very okay, not okay with it, but like they would know it well. It could articulate how shitty of a person they were. And, and, and yet when I pushed back on their goodness or their glory or their integrity, they couldn't bear it. They couldn't bear their goodness. And that right there, if the work of therapy, if the work of healing is learning to bear our glory and our goodness with integrity, like that to me feels like the work. Andrew Bauman is a licensed mental health counselor with an MA in counseling psychology from the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. He's the author of Floating Away, Stumbling Toward Wholeness, The Psychology of Porn, and A Brave Lament. Uh, Andrew and I talked all about addiction and shame and self-contempt and the theology that surrounds all of that. We also talked about the kindness and compassion that can move us into a different way of living. I, I love this conversation with Andrew, and I think you will too. Uh, so enjoy, and then consider buying his book, which we talked a lot about, called Stumbling Toward Wholeness. The link is available on the show notes or you can get it anywhere books are sold. Enjoy the conversation. Andrew, man, it's so good to have you on. How are you today? Doing well. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here, man. Glad to be here. Well, and, you know, as I've been reading your book and following you, it just seems like um, I've, I'm talking to a lot of people that are exploring issues of shame, um, body stuff, Yes. Uh, healing, addiction, and so I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I should probably do like a series. I should probably get my shit together and do an actual series on authors that are actually talking about one subject. But I'm just going piece by piece. So uh, here we go. Um, so uh, your first sentence of your book made me laugh out loud. And that is my family put the mental and fundamentalism. So tell us a little bit about sort of your background and your yes. upbringings. Uh, and um, yeah. we'll see where we go. Yeah, we, we grew up very, very strict and fundamentalist world. My father was a vice president of a Christian college, a pastor, um, and also a lawyer. Um, so that's an interesting combination. Um, but he also had a secret life. So he also, for 20, 20 years, um, had a relationship with, uh, you know, with men, um, sleeping around with, with other men, hiding uh, drug addiction, sex addiction, um, and acting like everything was okay. And there's no way we can live these two separate lives without something breaking. Yeah. Uh, and so my, my father's facade began to break down some 30 years ago. And, and all, um, all the cards began to crumble. Um, and my mother being just a very good Christian girl, naive, but just longing for just a, a good Christian home, had no tools how to deal with something so big, the nuclear bomb 
of infidelity, um, the nuclear bomb of, of these lies coming out. And so that slowly began to uh, break my family apart as my father went to go try to seek help um, and kind of nothing changing over the years. Um, then we finally broke away when I was eight years old. Um, and that kind of began, set me on a path of, you know, holding depression, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, and then going into my teen years, finding pornography and, um, really finally finding something that met my woundedness. Yeah in a place that nothing else could, the beauty of a woman. And so as I began to devour women and objectify women, um, it at least kept me alive. Mm-hmm. It's just such a weird thing to say that, um, and, and yet that's what addiction does. Addiction sustains us. Um, it helps us escape reality um, until that addiction begins to destroy us, um, until it begins to take over us. And so that was the early stages of you know, eight to beginning into teenage years. Um, and all of the, all of along going to church three times a week, continuing to uh, play the roles, um, and continuing to going through mental health crisis after another till about 13 years ago, I uh, ended up in a psychiatric ward, um, you know, wanting to commit suicide, driving myself to the hospital. And that was kind of my breaking point that really set me on a trajectory um, for a new life. Well, thanks so much for even spelling that out. I imagine it took you a bunch of years to even sort of be able to tell that story like that. Right. Yes. Um, but so when you, you know, you're eight years old, your, your mom decides to leave. How does that, like, are you aware of what's happening at that time or is it just, no, daddy's having a problem and yeah, no, not even that. I mean, I kind of wish even we said that, um, it was, we went on vacation, Hmm. um, and didn't go back. And so basically the, the thought was, um, because especially you, Andrew are so fragile, so sensitive, I, we can't tell you anything, but there, there was such a stigma of shame, specifically specifically around homosexuality and that deep of a conservative culture that my mom just felt so burnt. She couldn't say anything. You know, she felt so shamed. Um, I I was even writing about it today in a new piece that I'm working on. But um, I asked my mom this past week some of her stories around the stigma of divorce and being a single mother 30 years ago. And she told me the story of a woman in church walking up to her, wagging her finger and saying, your kids need a father. Oh, wow. Right. And so have multiple stories of this where this single mom just, again, trying the best she could, getting demonized. Um, getting when she was the one that was trying to save our life mm-hmm. from being destroyed by by a man who was out of control. Yeah. So she didn't have anyone to talk to. Yeah. No, she felt completely. You know, that she had to try to protect us um, without, you know, w- without telling the full truth. Right. So I was around 18 years old, and my life beginning to unravel pretty significantly. And uh, I was visiting my father, and I was looking around for pornography. I thought, hey, this, you know, um, you know, single man, he might have some. And I found um, some hardcore pornography uh, that kind of began to me questioning my father's sexuality. 
and then asking my brother uh, more of kind of what what the story was. So not until I was 18 did I really find out more of my origin story. And what do you think the impact was on you? I mean, you you said it so eloquently that, you know, as an eight-year-old, Andrew is so fragile that we have to absolutely, you know, essentially lie to you, to your brother about what's going on. What, what What impact did that have on you, do you think? Well, what I tell people now in my practice, you know, as a therapist and um, as an author is I write so much about the importance of living in truth, that God is truth. And the more we live in truth, the more we can experience God. And so that, that, that's like radical, you know, radical truth. Like, how do we live into this? How do we live into truth? How do we tell the truth? And it needs to be age appropriate, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, but yet, Living in truth, I think, always has less implications than living a lie. Uh, I remember uh, years ago, a client working through um, some of his uh, pornography use um, and his infidelity to his wife 15 years earlier. And he said, I can't tell her. We're finally in a good place, Andrew. Mm. I can't tell her now. Um, And basically, like, but I'm going to choose this lie you know, and we didn't, we weren't able to continue our work much further because we kind of came at this impasse of saying like living in truth, like what is going to be given up? The intimacy that is lost by living a lie is much darker than the intimacy lost by telling the truth of the infidelity 15 years earlier. Well, I think this for me brings up some of how particularly a, a certain kind of Christianity breeds the silence and yes. the shame and the secrecy mm, yes. in the name of righteousness, God, holiness, yes. even the yes. unity of the church and all that stuff. And I think mm. I know you've written and thought a whole lot about that. And so, you know, be be a be a critiquer right now. Um, yes. Of of a system, you know, because I can I can hear even some people saying, well, really, eight years old. Am I really going to tell? You know, my eight-year-old, really, the honest truth, or is this truth always the best option? But mm-hmm. but yes. paint the picture um, of what gets, what grows in systems mm. where you can't tell the truth ever. Oh, yes. And I, I do see it no place as dark as the church, as I'm sure you know, but oh, I yeah. counsel pastors all the time, where they literally are missionaries all the time, where they say, I cannot tell the truth or I'm fired. Yeah. I cannot say what I'm actually struggling with, or I can't feed my children. Um, like that setup right there is a is a is absolute co- uh, toxic cocktail for failure. Hundred percent. We are we are raising up our leaders to live hidden lives. Yeah. Or they can't feed their children. Really? Does that is that the dynamic? That, that needs to be the isolation that like, of course, you know, 50% of our uh, pastors have a relationship with pornography, a hidden relationship with pornography, right? 60% of youth pastors. It's like, we're setting up a culture where people almost have to hide yeah. rather than a culture of authenticity, of truth, of humility that I think is actually changes people's lives and leads us to the cross in a beautiful way. Yeah, I think that's why, you know, we're, when we, as we've seen certain pastors with moral failures and things like that, um, number one, it feels like 
sometimes I wonder, man, is that their only way out? Like, is is that the only way to escape the system? Certainly it isn't, but is that what it seems like? And then it feels like, yeah, you're right. It's almost like, see me, see me, see me. Like I'm going to light the couch on fire. Yeah. You know, I'm going to burn it down. Like, like somebody, somebody see the genuine me. And, And I do, I feel like that's great language you're putting around it of like, this is a desperate call to be seen and to be known. Yeah. Cause I don't, I don't necessarily buy certainly maybe some, but I don't necessarily buy that. It's only sexual predators that, that, you know, they, they take the pastorate meaning to, no, I mean, I think that's possible for sure. And that's, that has existed. But I think for many it's, um, the pressures yes. lead to a kind of, um, a a feeling of someone owes me something. This is such hard work. I'm entitled to some relief. And maybe that relief is pornography. Maybe that relief is flirting. Maybe that really, you know, and you see it. I mean, you just, I, you know, so, um, I want to ask you, cause I really do want to get into your beautiful book, which I really am loving. I'm not done yet, but it's, um, it's really all about, the story of the father and the two sons that, that Jesus tells in Luke 15. Uh, when did you, Andrew, when did you first kind of start falling in love with that story and yeah. you know, imagine it as, as a framework really for healing? Yeah, exactly. I think when I, you know, deep into my practice, probably seven years into my private practice, I just really started seeing this framework that people would come into my office and they would be very comfortable with their sin. Um, they would name it. They would be, you know, they would they would be very okay, not okay with it, but like they would know it well. Yeah, yeah. They could articulate how shitty of a person they were, right? Like, yeah. And, and yet, when I pushed back on their goodness or their glory or their integrity, they couldn't bear it. Hmm. They couldn't bear their goodness. Yes. And that right there, if the work of therapy, if the work of healing is learning to bear our glory and our goodness with integrity, like that to me feels like the work. And so that framework beginning to, you know, the younger son could not receive well the father's delight, the father's grace. When he came running home, he had his whole, um, you know, speech prepared. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'll be a slave. I'm going to work it off. I'm going to, he was so full of self-hatred, you know, and then you go to the elder brother and there's just such entitlement, uh, which is a whole nother, you know, realm in the book. We go through each character, but our goal is to embody the father realm. Our, Our goal is to begin to show ourselves the kindness and love that God shows us, um, and that's kind of the framework of the book and, and kind of how it began in my heart, um, really saying, okay, what are you feeling right now? Um, wh- which character do you really align yourself with um, in this story? And so for my more theologically informed clients, this was a great bridge mm-hmm. to, to healing deep, deep issues of shame, contempt, judgment, um, you know, um, entitlement, um, and, and beginning to embody kindness of the Father. You, you write a lot about shame and particularly self-contempt. Um, talk a little bit more about the, re- you, so, and you said it, it's like, so the book is outlined in three parts, three realms, 
the realm of the son, the realm of the older son, the realm of the father. And each of them have different drives for, you know, um, talk about why we choose self-contempt mm -hmm. and shame to deal with our secrets. I mean, yes. I don't even know if that's how you'd say that, but, but yeah, uh, I would say they're, they're almost the easiest, right? Okay. I don't have to deal with the actual heartache and I don't have to feel the weight of grief if I can villainize. <sighs> so I'm either going to villainize myself, which is normally the easiest self-contempt and most or, Christian quote unquote, it, you know what I mean? Air quotes. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, actually, yeah. Let's even before that, like, um, self-hatred is actually celebrated as humility 100%. in most Christian cultures. hundred percent. Right? He must become greater. I must become Ugh. less used as gasoline to fuel my self-hatred. Yeah. Right? yeah. I'm actually not only I'm celebrated for how crappy I am of a person, right? But God is good, but I'm horrific rather than can we hold that I am an image bearer of God? In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that don't you recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Hmm. What, what if I actually take seriously that Jesus Christ is in me, that I embody the Imago Dei? What, what if I take seriously that if I curse myself, I might as well be flipping the bird to God? <laughs> and I guarantee you, if you flip the bird to God and you say, F you, you know, you just scream it out, like you will feel that in a much different way than when you just curse yourself. But we have normalized cursing ourselves. Yeah. We have celebrated cursing ourselves as humility rather than seeing actually you are joining the evil one that is trying to steal, kill and destroy mm. life. That's good. And it really even makes me think like there's a, there's a, so this is so nerdy and theological and my apologies for everyone who's <laughs> listening. Right. But there's a, there's a certain theological concept that, that rose up out of the reformed movement, which was an idea called imputed righteousness, which is sort mm -hmm. of like, um, when God sees you because of the work of the cross by Christ, yes. what he sees right. actually is not you, but Jesus, he sees Jesus, he sees Jesus right. overlaid on you. And there's a way in which maybe on a certain level that can sound like, oh, that's such good news. But when you dig into that just a little bit, it, it's really it's really easy to prop up a theology of self-hatred behind yes. that. Because what that means is that God can't even look at me. God has to look at yes. – God doesn't – can't even look at me, has to see yes. Jesus. And I think mm. – I, I think that's actually unbelievably anthropologically – harmful don't you think yes well i well, think even even thinking about the um original sin right me growing up southern baptist how often did you hear about original sin oh gosh you know, throwing up have you ever heard a sermon or you know maybe you have but like have you preached a sermon about original glory yeah see that's so that good. before we were sinners we actually were in perfect communion with God. And our, our goal is not to get back to our sin, but our goal is to get back to our original glory and our goodness. That's 100% so good. Um, okay, so one, one quote that I underlined in your book was, self-contempt is fundamentally a form of covert narcissism. Yes. Uh, so I underlined that and said, wow. So, I mean, I think that's what you've been talking about, but say a little more about that. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, 
imagine someone, you know, is apologizing to you, right? For some way they've harmed you. Let's say they were talking, talking junk about you behind your back. All right. And so they approach you and they apologize. I'm going to apologize in two different ways. Okay. And I just want you to check in with your body and feel what you're feeling as I do this. Steve, uh, I'm so sorry. Um, I, I'm so stupid. Um, I, I'm such an idiot. Um, I can't believe I said that about you. I was trying to get a laugh from a friend, but I'm just, I'm so stupid. I, I just said it and I'm sorry. Okay. Now, okay, okay. Can I even respond? But even before you go yeah. there, cause I did have a response. I, I did have a bodily yeah. response and actually nope. it was sort of like, it, it was to, to move to protect you like, Oh no, oh, yes. buddy. No, no, no. That's okay. I mean, exactly. you're not, you're not, a, exactly. You know what I mean? So, so it sort of took right. some of the energy away from the, the apology because now right. I'm trying to tell, no, 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 no. You know, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Now, number two, I want you to feel in your body, Steve, I'm so sorry. Um, I was trying to get a cheap laugh from a friend and I did it at your expense. Um, I, I know you trust me and I failed you. Um, I shouldn't have said that about you, and, and I'm truly sorry. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, it's, but my shoulders are dropping, you know? Like, yeah, yeah like, I can take that in. That that feels yeah. like I don't have to now spend energy exactly trying to make you feel okay. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I tell you that example because that fits perfectly with self-contempt is fundamentally narcissistic. That mm -hmm. first apology was all about what a crappy person I am. Yeah. It was not about how I harmed you. Yeah. It, it wasn't about you. It was about me. It was about more of I'm sad I got caught, that I got exposed. But the second one, I didn't throw myself under the bus once. But I actually entered into your pain much more fully by not self-annihilating. <sighs> Yeah, that's yeah. No, I get it. I mean, I really do get it. And it's subtle, right? Like that's yes. a but it's actually huge. Um Exactly. Cuz how often have you felt self-contempt filled apologies and then you're just like I'm not going to forgive. I'm like you don't want to forgive me if I just give you the first one. You actually don't want to move towards me because you're right because you should not trust me. Yeah. Cuz I'm relationally not trustworthy. But I like that too because I've typically heard the apology comparison, like the first apology is sort of like, hey, I'm sorry if you think I hurt you, but in, in, right. it's like it's such a non-apology that it doesn't even yes. count. You know what I mean? Like no yeah. one really feels. But actually right. when you gave, you know, I, yeah, I've heard, I've, I've done that. I mean, I've heard that a bunch. I've done that a bunch. Right. If um, I annihilate myself enough, then you're going to somehow forgive me, right? Yeah. Or you're going to somehow take care. It's so manipulative. Because what you said is you, you like, I'm going to get you to try to take care of me and I'm going to completely miss how I've harmed you. Yeah, it is manipulative. You're totally right. Hey, we'll get right back to the podcast, but I want to let you know about a new resource that I'm creating called Finding God After Losing Faith. It's for anyone who feels stuck in their religious system, who feels like they can't possibly make it one more day without believing something new. In this weekly email, I'll provide links and articles and poems and some of the best and most inspiring things that I know about in order to help you keep finding God even if you've lost your faith. But the only way to get it is by subscribing to my weekly email. And you can do that by going to my website, steveweens.com. 
and then scroll to the bottom and subscribe to Finding God After Losing Faith. I'm really excited about this one, and I hope it is a really helpful weekly resource for you as you continue to search for God. Now, back to the podcast. Um, I want to move into, because I know you've done a lot of work around addiction and recovery. And so um, this is not moving on from that. It's just building on the good work that you've already talked about. But um, how do you you define addiction? Where does addiction Mm -hmm. sort of... Where does it get its birth? When is yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's so many, even in the field, so many competing ideas around addiction. And, and I focus on my, in my counseling practice, mostly around sexual addiction. Um, even that is somehow controversial, but I basically look at it very, a wide swath of like, we can be addicted to pretty much anything. What do you use to escape? Mm-hmm. What do you use to, to run? <laughs> what do you, what do you use to dull pain? Um, and that's kind of, that's the, the framework. And so for years I used sexuality, I used pornography, I used women, um, to help numb my pain. Um, but currently right now in my life in a small ways, I use my phone, Mm, right? I want to play or, you know, dumb little games and I just want to check out. Um, it's hard to be in it. And I'm, again, I'm not saying all checking out is wrong, but do we, can we at least name it for what it is? Can we at least tell the truth that I, I want to escape right now? I'm tired. I'm this. I'm, but but genuine self-care actually restores. Mm-hmm. Just checking out and disassociating actually drains us, right? If I'm sitting playing on my phone or watching hours of Netflix, I actually feel worse after when, I, when I'm done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. I feel the hangover. Uh, rather when I go do something restorative, when I go you know hike, when I go play tennis, when I go, when I go do something for me. Um, I actually feel energy. Well, I think that's a good differentiation there. Like at afterwards, whatever it is that you've engaged in, because you feel stressed out or you feel whatever, uh, do you feel restored or do you feel further depleted? Sounds exactly. like that's a good sort of gauge, right? Oh, yes, definitely. Yep. And that, and then at least I can tell the truth about my life and what I'm participating in. Okay. And so your work with um, Dan Allender because yep. I know he's just a huge pioneer in the field and someone yes. I actually really respect. I've never met him, never talked to him before, but just reading his <laughs> stuff and different friends who've been through uh, his training. Uh, yes. What do you feel like are, are some of the main philosophies around wholeness, addiction, recovery that you've embraced from the work with that you've done with Dan Allender? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know. There's a couple of people in my life that have informed my way of thinking more than anyone. And he's, he's one of them. So studied under him for 10 years and worked closely with him for a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so, there's so much, you know, I would definitely encourage people to dive into his work, but his work around sexual abuse, um, is just huge. It informs a lot of the way I practice. Um, and also just kindness, right? I mean, he, just preaches harbors on this so much, which is a big part of my book of what does it mean to extend kindness towards ourselves in a really radical way. And, um, you know, sitting in his class for years and and really learning from him really greatly informed how I engage myself in my own kindness. Well, let's get back to your book for a second, because I think even those of us who are familiar with the story, we can say, okay, I, I know that I identify with the younger son at times. I've 
runoff. And maybe for some of us, that's our major, you know, like I, we, we typically right. identify with the younger son. Maybe a lot of us identify with the oldest one, you know, the, per, the one on the Enneagram, yeah. you know, the person who's, <laughs> who's gotten it all right, the person who's responsible, the person who's never, uh, never not done what they said that they would do, but it has led to all kinds of self-righteousness maybe. Yes. And, um, yes, I would say so many people in the church actually are the elder brothers for sure. You know, so many of us. And I think this is even maybe more so why Jesus even told this story to the Pharisees uh, to expose the elder brother. We really harp on the son and the sin aspect of it, but we really miss the elder brother. Well, I mean, I even think, you know, really, like I've been looking at this lately. I, I wrote a little bit about it in my next book about mm -hmm. this story. And, you know, really, like as I look at the younger son, I mean, there's so much you can extrapolate out. It's such a beautiful story, you know? Yeah. But like his actual repentance speech, as you've already mentioned, it is, is not much of a repentance speech. I mean, it's, a, it's filled <laughs> no. with self-contempt. Exactly. You know, it's earnings, trying to earn back. Uh, exactly. And so I mean, if he's affected, and it seems like he is, and again, it's a parable, but it's, it's because of the kindness of the Father. And I wonder, exactly. could you talk a little bit about how um, difficult maybe it is, number one, maybe to receive the mm, kindness, yeah. why it's so difficult, but then also why it's so difficult for us to show ourselves kindness and self-compassion. That seems to be... Mm -hmm so hard. Why is yes. that? I think we really, you know, back to the narcissism and our contempt, we really feel like somehow our safe, our self-hatred will redeem us. Yeah. That will, okay, that's will, good. We, we can forgive our own sin if I hate myself enough. Man. Um, it, you know, somehow we've, we've really twisted that rather than it's the complete opposite. It's not the shedding of your blood that leads to repentance. It's the shedding of Christ's blood that leads to repentance. But we somehow think if I can just destroy myself, if I can bleed enough, then somehow I'll be forgiven. I mean, it's just so, so twisted. Um, I remember this was really shown to me um, a mentor of mine who really helped save my life, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And I remember I was going through a horrific breakup and was just really lost um, going into the summer uh, and, and during college, and I had all my summer plans changed, called my mentor, and he's like, I'll call you every day, and we can talk through this. And a couple days in, um, he he said, Andrew, have you thought about moving in for the summer, moving in with me and my family? And I was like, whoa, like I wasn't expecting that. Um, he was a professor of mine previously, and um, I said, well, well, let me let me think about that. So I took the day to think about it. Um, and I called him the next day and I said, it just blurted out and I felt ashamed right after I said it. I said, what if you don't love me anymore? Mm. What if I do something that like, I need you and I can't, I can't think of losing you too. Um, and he said this and I'll never forget it. He said, Andrew, I made up my mind about you a long time ago. Whoa. And Whoa. instantly freedom to say yes. And I moved in with him for that summer, not really a part of the story, but that summer I did meet my wife um, you know, as I was living with him. But like, like his, that, that grace, that nothing you can do can change my love for you, that embodied the Father's love. Hmm. Yeah. 
that that showed me what kindness. How do I offer that kindness to myself? How do I begin to embody? And so that was a really picture, an external picture of the Father's love. But then my journey, you know, the last 15 years have been learning to integrate that unconditional love towards my own shame, towards my own contempt, right? Towards my own entitlement. That's so good. Um, I'm going to ask you this next question, but it's putting you on the spot a little bit. So if it's a pass, that's okay. It's totally okay. but can you even, because I think this is so important to combat self-contempt and shame to start to drive a different narrative. Can you give, can you think back to the last few weeks, few months and sort of work us through an example of how maybe you mm-hmm. you, you did something and then you were tempted to do shame and self-contempt because that's sure, how you thought sure, you were sure. going to be redeemed, so, but then you changed yeah, it. This isn't, this isn't as like super recent, but I remember, uh, few probably a few years ago it was after a particularly cold northwest winter standing at the park across the street from my house with a buddy of mine we we're watching our kids play at the park um and he's standing there and i said something about you know our bodies our dad bods right and so i made a comment about my fat ass <laughs> he giggled right you giggled like mm-hmm. right there's some humor there and yet i right after i said it I felt immense guilt. Yeah. Cause I had I had been working so hard in therapy, my own therapy, to not curse myself anymore. Right. And for a cheap laugh, I made fun of my body. Hmm. And and I mocked myself. And and just realizing the weight of that and just what does repentance look like? And that goes back to the image bearer of God. Am I mocking God's work in me? Wow. And what does that mean if I actually took seriously the cursing of my butt as a curse against God? Wow. And, and like, and realizing I don't like the feeling of that. I don't like cursing, even for, again, a cheap laugh. Like, it's not worth cursing myself. Yeah. And really taking seriously, how do I engage myself? What is my inner dialogue? How am I going to to talk about my body and bless my body for how hard it has worked. Hmm. I think that's so good, Andrew. And I wonder, um, and I am picking on Christians. I am one, so I feel like I can, Mm -hmm. but it's like, even if we get beyond the fact, okay, no, I'm not going to, not going to curse myself, my personhood, my, Right. But man, we, we will continue to do it with our bodies. Somehow our bodies, you know what I mean? Yes. Like we, that's, nope, that's different. I can go ahead and feel shame right. and, and even, um, and oh, we, well, yes, no, no, go, go. Cause you, we, 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 we just wreak havoc on our bodies. Yeah. Right. I think it's particularly around women, right. And the sexualized culture and, and what, men have done so much as we've um, harmed women um, through sexism. Um, and I just think of like, okay, for your listeners, like, what are the story of your breasts? What, what are the, st- like, your, your thighs have a story to tell. Your vagina has a story to tell. Your penis has a story to tell. Will you allow parts of your body to tell their story? Or will you continue to hide in shame? Wow. 
And that's even, you know, a quick plug for my wife's new book. That's so much of her, her new book, The Theology of the Womb, Knowing God Through the Body of a Woman. Wow. Um, women, it's time to tell your story, your bodies, because so much has been through the eyes of men, pastors, who have not been able to see God through because of their own objectification of the feminine. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's a whole... Okay, we need to have your wife on the podcast, obviously. <laughs> I'm going to put it on the show notes too, but Andrew, just because I know people are going to be like, what? Oh my gosh. Uh, can you just repeat your wife's um, name and, and, and her book and when it's coming out yes. or if it's coming yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it came out a month ago, so it just came out. Just had the launch party this week. But uh, Theology of the Womb by Christy Bauman, E-A-U-A-N. Okay, I'm going to put that on the show notes. So just stevebeans.com slash show notes. If you're listening recently, it'll pop right up. If you're um, if you're needing to search because you're listening later, just search Andrew Bauman on um, the search field. And um, my goodness, I think that's so profound. I just think that's so profound. Um, okay, wrapping up, just a few more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, it, how do you, you know, we've talked a little bit about pastors. I am one. Um, mm-hmm. How do pa- how can pastors change? How would you invite us yes. to move into a different way of understanding, so mm-hmm. that we can be better um, messengers of the the actual good news? Yes, yes. I think you know a little bit of what we touched on earlier, just um, isolation, right? The, this the innate isolation of the position itself, um, and and are you inviting more voices to the table? Right? Are you inviting more women to the table? Are you inviting more people of color to the table? Um, or is it just you and your buddies, you know, <laughs> who have a great time together, but it's just become this boy boys club yeah. um, that you don't actually challenge each other. You don't actually see things, you know, see read scripture through very different lenses because you've all grown up similar. You all have similar yeah. experiences. Um, we've got to start opening up ourselves. Um, to more to more impact, more of different voices. We've got to start being more authentic about our failures um, in a much deeper way. That's really good. That's really good. And I think, um, you know, honestly, I think most of us that have been in it for any length of time know when we're isolating into the same old, same old, the same people that yeah. we read, the same... Uh, conversations that we fall ourselves that, that that we fall into, and so I, I like your advice to you know get some different kinds of people around the table, um, people of different ethnicities, women. Yeah, uh, it's yes. so good. Um, anything else you want to say about? Um, let's say you know some listeners are sort of lost in some of the addiction really mm-hmm. identify with the work of shame and self-contempt. They want to start moving into a different way of being, more wholeness. What are some you know, steps to take? I know it's yeah. not about quick fixes, certainly not. But if you want to take one step toward wholeness, what, what would that be, do you yeah. think? Yeah. I mean, I'm reminded of Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads to repentance. And what does it mean to begin to extend that kindness to yourself? So it, it literally is just in regular day conversation 
When are you cruel? When you make a mistake at work, what's the next, what's the next thing you say to yourself? Yeah. Oh, I'm such a idiot or I'm such a, like, do you realize what you say to yourself? Um, do you realize the inner dialogue and start taking that captive, start changing that inner dialogue, start taking responsibility for your sin against yourself? Um, and that's just really the first step of really beginning to change that internal dialogue. And when you begin to change that internal dialogue, it really begins to change the way you do life. Yeah. And I uh, thank you for that. I think that's so good. I think that's why, uh, maybe for the last year or two, I've really been trying to get into mindfulness because I mean, I think all mindfulness is, 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 (laughs) really taking thoughts captive. It's, it's understanding that our thoughts are so up and down and almost yes. they are, our thoughts literally are out of control. They're, they're, they're yeah. not in control. Right. Um, I mean, meaning they just, they flow in, they flow out and right. we feel like we're subject to them. But I think mindfulness is a way of following breath in and out and realizing mm. that you know, the impermanence of certain thoughts and that we don't have to fall prey to some of these negative self-talk, self-contempt, that yes. that's not even who we are. That's coming at us yes, from exactly. somewhere else, you know? Exactly. Well said. So, um, okay, Andrew, uh, you are a therapist, you're a writer, you release, um, some pretty cool YouTube clips, um, uh, you're teaching and stuff. Where can people find more and you're the author of several books, Floating yeah. Away. Uh, this one we've been talking about is called Stumbling Toward Wholeness, The Psychology mm-hmm. of Porn, and then A Brave Lament. How, yes. uh, how, um, how can we follow so two, you? How can yeah, we find two, you? Two sites. Um, AndrewJBallman.com uh, is my main site where most of my work and my writing is. And then we also, my wife and I, run um, the Christian Counseling Center for Sexual Health um, and trauma. And so that's our business, um, that we run and, uh, we do work in Seattle and also North Carolina. We've opened up a site there as well and kind of travel back and forth. And so you can find that on www.christiancc.org. And that's the Christian counseling center for sexual health and trauma. Okay. I'm going to put both of those, uh, on the website. Also, um, put links to all of Andrew's books, uh, especially, well, I mean, including stumbling toward wholeness, which we've been talking about today. Uh, Anything, any other last thoughts? Uh, Anything you were hoping I would ask you, but I didn't? Uh, Well, I mean, there's the whole other realm about grief, um, which I know you, you know, well, personally, um, and just part of the father realm of befriending grief, right? The father's love was so extravagant to the son because he thought he was dead. Yeah. Um, Right. And so we can only celebrate to the level in which we grieve. And so part of befriending grief and embodying the father is also becoming a person who is familiar with heartache, suffering and grief. And so as dismal as that could sound, I truly believe the way to resurrection is through crucifixion. And do you, I'm so glad you brought that up because I do want to ask just a couple of quick follow-up questions. Do you think most of us underplay the trauma in our lives so that we wouldn't even say grief is necessary? Yes, definitely. Uh, yes. 
Yes. Do you take do you take seriously your story? We all live in a fallen world, right? You don't have to be sexually abused, even though, what is it? One out of three women, <laughs> one out of six men, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to be sexually abused to to say, oh, my story has a capital T trauma. You have trauma, right? It could be. Um, I remember in sixth grade, I think it was. Um, Mr. Craig calling me a slithering slug mm. that leaves my slimy trail wherever I go. Wow. How do you think that felt to me, right? You know, single, you know, single parent home, 12 years old, looking for male role models everywhere. I remember that curse. Yeah. I remember that curse. I'm glad you uh, call it a curse too. That is a trauma, right? That is a marking of me. And can I feel it? Even if it's not this capital T, huge, horrific trauma, can I honor what that little boy felt in his wounded heart that day in science class? Yeah, I think it's just getting starting, like when these things come up, like when we're surprised by, uh, you were talking about, you're writing about watching Finding Nemo in your book. Yeah. And you said you were surprised because all of a sudden you're crying, you know, and you, mm-hmm. but I think that's a signal that we need to grieve, right? Like when we're surprised by yes. sudden tears, sudden anger. Yes. Exactly. Our body knows, yeah. our body knows the truth, right? Our body tells the truth. Will you listen to your body? Well, you're not going to listen to your body if you have self-contempt. Right. Because you curse your body. Wow. But well, our, body knows, our body knows what it needs. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Um, anything else about grief? So glad you brought that up. Yeah, um, yeah, we've done a work. Uh, Brave Lament is a book we wrote, and also a documentary that we produced uh, a couple years ago uh, on the loss of our firstborn son. And so that would be something for your listeners to to look. The book you can get it on Amazon, but documentary it's actually uh, you can watch it for free on Amazon Prime. It's thirty eight minutes, but it tells the story of how do you move into grief, how do you honor grief, um, how do you do ritual to mark, and that's the journey of our community going through that grief together. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna put the link to that documentary. Um, yeah, I'm just throwing you... everything at you no, right it's... now. It's great. I mean, we'll put it all in the show notes. It'll be all there. Uh, and so, Andrew, thank you so much, man. This was even better than I hoped for. Uh, your honesty, your vulnerability, you're saying it straight. Uh, such a gift for me. I mean, I, I, I like I joke around. Like, I don't care. I mean, I, I of course I care if people listen to the podcast. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like, oh, I don't care. If, of course I care. I care a lot. But I also, I just, I, I, I interview, I have conversations with people like you because this is what I'm interested in. You know, yeah, this is what right. I need to learn. Right. So thank you so much for being such a great resource. I love it. Thanks for having me. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to this good word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash this good word. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. 
So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.